Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Michael Fordham, host of A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. And I want to take a moment to talk to you about a heinous crime against humanity that plagues our nation. And yes, believe it or not, communities just like yours. Here's something you can do today to lend your support in the fight against human trafficking, also known as modern slavery. For example, Tanya was only 11 when she was forced to use her body for her own survival and the perverse desires of others. Now 18, Tanya knows no other life. She can't even remember when she was able to choose how she wanted to dress. Tanya dreams of being a teacher one day, and with the help of Bridge to Freedom programs and your support, they can empower her and others like her to move from surviving to thriving. You can make a huge difference in the life of a survivor this year through your support and donations to Bridge to Freedom Foundation. Bridge to Freedom is a nonprofit organization that provides aid to survivors of slavery who now live in the U.S., such as former child soldiers and victims of sex trafficking and forced labor. The cornerstone of Bridge to Freedom's work is personal and professional development to help survivors adapt and thrive in their new lives and communities and find work to support themselves. The Bridge to Freedom Foundation needs your support to help people just like Tanya. They need your urgent action to ensure that they can continue to provide clothing and health and beauty services to these survivors. These are not only important for rebuilding self-esteem, but are crucial to finding employment. 
They're also in great need of storage containers and clothing racks to organize and store donations. While donations of needed items are vital, one sure thing that will help to stop the spread of this injustice and prevent it from thriving undetected is educating yourselves about human trafficking or slavery and knowing the signs and the proper authorities to contact if you become aware of a victim in crisis. Find out more at BridgeToFreedomFoundation.org or if you have a reason to suspect that someone may be a victim of human trafficking, please call the National Human Trafficking Resource Center hotline on 1-888-373-7888. Multilingual call specialists are on standby 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. All calls are confidential. Welcome, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com, and I'm your host, Michael Fordham. Look, if you just click the link on my webpage or you're listening on blogtalkradio.com or even the Blog Talk Radio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, I'm sorry, this time around, no live calls. This is my special three-year anniversary edition, and we're going to just run this show with some of my pre-recorded commentaries from the past. But if you like, you can still Twitter me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash a measure of truth. And also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with the photo of me in studio, and you can always email me your questions and comments at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, we've got a great show for you today. It's just going to be a little different. Well, what this is all about is three years ago, I got my start in radio at XM 155 Take 5 under the tutelage of Blanche Williams on her show, Greatness by Design with Blanche Williams. This happened to be the day before the King holiday. Well, as a mentor, Blanche got me involved right away. Shortly after my interview, she invited me into the studio, sat me in front of a microphone, and moments later, I was on national radio. Wow. On my way home, I was so excited and overwhelmed, I could hardly drive. I knew right then and there that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. When I got home and I started to tell my wife about my experience, I realized that my face was hurting from the huge smile that I had on my face all the way home. Well, as a mentor, Blanche has gone above and beyond to this day to push me to realize my dreams. I really can't thank her enough. Look, if everyone had a friend like Blanche, believe me, the world would be a much better place to live. Now, how's that for a measure of truth? Well, guys, just sit back and listen. I've got a lot of pre-recorded commentaries, and some of them go way, way back. So you might hear some growth in there, because <laughs> I guess my voice and my style has come a long way. It was a little painful for me to listen to some of them, but the content was still pretty amazing. Very impressive, I have to say so. Well, anyway, I hope you enjoy it, and let me know what you think. It seems that the truth has somehow lost its appeal. In today's society, what really can we say is the truth? Most of what we hear from news sources, whether they're TV, radio, newspapers, magazines, and the Internet, have been crafted with only one goal in mind, to sell more publications, to get higher ratings, and grab the attention of more and more consumers. We as consumers have been corralled, misled, polluted, and confused by the media hype and spin doctor machine until we're too exhausted and 
overwhelmed by the rhetoric and minutiae, to have the real focused attention needed to analyze the facts when the truth finally does come to light. The story that could be has become so enticing to the media conglomerates that the real story and a great story no longer resemble one another. A measure of truth attempts to expose the underlying truth of news stories that you all have heard before, but gives you first-hand accounts from key players that have not yet been given a voice to tell the facts. These bearers of the truth are often forced to wait until the media hype has expired, and the backstory, which was in fact the only story, finally comes into vogue. When news and information comes with this much baggage, you can only hope for a measure of truth. While Barack Obama continues to wow his supporters with poise, grace, and real answers for real issues, he continues to gain momentum all the way up to Election Day. The McCain camp, on the other hand, seems to be running out of gas. Now we've come to the end of the road and most Americans have already made up their minds on who they're going to vote for. So where did it all go wrong for McCain? Well, from the very beginning, the McCain camp has had last-ditch effort written all over it. When he ran in 2000, he nearly beat George W. Bush by being an outspoken, honest politician, and only a vicious campaign of lies and radical attacks by Bush stopped him. Hmm, sounds familiar. I guess the Bush team worked him over pretty good, too, and that's right. He has the scars to prove it. Not leaving it to chance that an opponent would use the same sleazy political hitmen, he walked right over to the dark side and hired them for his own campaign. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer? I'm not sure that's what they meant by that. But things are not going as planned, and the Palin factor, although still present, just isn't impacting the campaign in the same way it had. McCain is starting to see that he has blown his last chance to check become the President of the United States of America off his bucket list. Recently, I watched the McCain-Palin joint interview with Sean Hannity, and I sensed some friction between the two. What is very apparent to me seeing the two together is that now Sarah Palin realizes that she is more popular than McCain, and win or lose, she has a much brighter future. I said from the very beginning that the Palin factor came with an expiration date, and I think the McCain feels that he's just not getting what he bargained for, while Palin feels that she has far exceeded expectations. And you can bet that she's been taking careful notes on what and what not to do when running for the office of the president. This is Michael Fordham, and that's just my opinion. But in there somewhere, you'll find a measure of truth. The time has come for us to learn, to analyze and scrutinize the things that we have conveniently come to believe as factual through repetition from what is actually the real truth. We have somehow been led to slaughter by our refusing to ask the questions that would hopefully make sense of the rhetoric, if indeed the rhetoric made any sense at all. We have our suspicions for good reason. So often we find it easier to go along to get along rather than ask the questions that would lead us to the truth. Have we grown so accustomed to being lied to that the lie has become the thing that we desire? Have we lost our taste over the years for what is real and factual, because we would rather be entertained than informed. How is it that we would rather focus on one tiny fragment of the aftermath than the root, source, and the cause? 
What then stops us from opening the debate that would bring about the key changes needed to break the cycle of injustice? Have we been made to feel powerless, or are we just unconcerned? What will it take to wake up America? In this age of information technology, there's more usable, factual resources available to the average individual through the Internet that could have ever been available to the most learned scholar just 15 years ago. But we still choose to be spoon-fed rather than research, debate, and digest the truth for ourselves. Now we find that we are so brainwashed that our attention now locksteps to the next scandalous, exaggerated, emotion-driven headline, while the truth sits unnoticed, in plain sight, yet another day. Well, I for one will not be a part of this brainwashing of the masses, this decline in intellect, this surrender of conscience. So where do you stand in the scheme of things? Free thinker with a mindset to seek out and devour the truth, or just another cog in the wheel of blind complacency? Well, of course the choice is yours. But as for me, no matter how much garbage you try to heap in my direction, I will always maintain a healthy appetite for a measure of truth. A few weeks ago on my way home, I was stopped at the traffic light just before entering my neighborhood, and I was thinking to myself just how much better my commute was than it was the day before. Earlier that week, I took my usual shortcut behind the mayor's office, and my wife and I saw Mayor Adrian Fenty in his new smart car. He waved to my wife and I, but I couldn't get my camera out fast enough, and I missed a great photo opportunity. So on Thursday, being better prepared... I tried again, but the weather was bad, and of course, so was the traffic, and I got stuck behind the mayor's office for over 20 minutes. When I got home, I was so beat, I went straight to my office and got myself a 40-minute acupressure infrared heat massage, and that brought me back to life. But today, traffic was a breeze. At the traffic light, I happened to look over to the car next to mine, and I saw a beautiful three-year-old little girl staring out of the window from her car seat in a daze. I smiled as I thought about how wonderfully simple our lives were back then when we were children. Then she noticed me and she smiled back, and I looked away to see if the light had changed, and when I looked back again, I smiled and saw her looking at me, and then she started laughing hysterically, only the way a three-year-old could. So I laughed, and she laughed, and the light turned green, and I waved goodbye and proceeded home. As I was driving, I thought to myself, if that would have occurred yesterday, even after my 90 minutes in traffic, that would have been all I needed to snap me back to life. A three-year-old smile versus my expensive massage bed. The kid wins every time. On the drive through my neighborhood, I had an epiphany. How many things have I placed in my life to make up for not taking the time to really enjoy all the simple things life has to offer? Well, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Many of us have forgotten how to enjoy and appreciate the little things or even the small steps of our accomplishments or the little likes in our relationships 
or the small things that bring us joy in the pursuit of things that would bring us greater happiness. We have become impatient and always looking ahead to the thing that we perceive to be the source of our happiness. Webster's defines joy as the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. Look, be careful in life that you do not lose your joy. Research shows that if you do, loss of good health is not far behind. Take time out to enjoy the little things in life. Rejoice in reliving life's joys through sharing them often with others. And take a moment to relax in your moment of peace through your joy instead of the empty pursuit of pleasure. If you ever lose sight of life's joy, take every step in your power to reclaim it as soon as possible. Your first step to reclaim true joy in life is just to look to God. He's always willing to show us his glory to all who are willing to seek. Just take a moment and look around you, and you will see his joy everywhere. But if you still need a starting point, look in the eyes of a child. The younger, the better. There you will find true joy, or in other words, joy and a measure of truth. As the world is still recalling from the news of the death of Michael Jackson, we find that the story as it unfolds, we're bombarded with more questions instead of answers. One thing is very clear. In spite of all the fame and fortune, Michael lived a very troubled life. We have heard from a number of players that have come to the defense of Michael and those who have been true friends and family members who have been concerned for his health and well-being for some time now. And more than a few shady characters that don't seem to really fit in the picture at all. Well, I've tried to wade through the hype and the minutia to find news stories with some substance and real answers. I found an interview with Deepak Chopra and his son and his daughter very genuine, and I was encouraged. So I went and searched for more of the same. I also found um, Larry King's interview with Jermaine Jackson as real and sincere as you could hope to get. What he had to say about his brother at their visit to Neverland Ranch taught me something new about Michael and how important the ranch and Michael's vision of a paradise here on earth meant to Michael and his family. The nurse, also not a close confidant of the family, made a lot of sense and told of a situation where Michael had asked her to administer and monitor the drug Diprovan, also known as Propovol and how concerned and shocked she was by such a request. I'm no expert on the truth, but I believe her story, partly because I didn't see someone who wanted to get attention, but someone who has realized her worst fears after advising a patient of an adverse effect due to an ill-advised course of action. We have even heard that Debbie Rowe may seek custody of the two oldest children, but it's highly unlikely that a judge looking out for the best interest of the children would split them up, and since she has no claim to the youngest blanket, this posturing is more likely about money than intent. But there is still someone that we haven't heard from, and that is the man himself, the King of Pop. Let me just say before I reveal what it is I want to share with you in this brief commentary, I never 
believe that Michael Jackson would ever hurt a child. I'm sorry, but I just don't get that from him. And again, I'm no expert, but I just don't think he fits the profile. His trouble started with things that he said openly to millions, not the other way around. Well, that's just my take on it. The very last Michael Jackson album that I purchased is Blood on the Dance Floor. And the reason I purchased this album is because it primarily contained tracks that expressed Michael's outrage and anger over the lies in the media and the pain that it has caused him and his family. And also his resolve not to quit no matter what they try to do to him. My all-time favorite is the track that he recorded with his sister Janet and my favorite all-time video. Scream. Download the lyrics from the internet if you don't have the record and listen to what he's saying. In Scream, he talks about how he was bashed, abusing, victimized within a scheme. In Ghost, he tries to understand a motive why his enemies are attacking him and asks the question, are you the ghost of jealousy? And there's This Time Around, which is almost a battle cry not to be used again and take on and take no stuff attitude because they really want to use me and then falsely accuse me. And then there's the second track on the album that I found myself skipping over time after time until I actually forgot it was there. The reason why is I just didn't get it. I never hear anyone refer to this song. The song is Morphine. Yeah, that's right. I said morphine. Now, most people that I've talked to about this song never knew anything about it. And I'm sure most of you haven't either. Well, this one speaks for itself, so I will not spoil it for those of you who will be listening for the first time. But you definitely want to find the lyrics as well for this one. And also listen for the music transition from morphine to Demerol. You know, sometimes even a voice from the grave can offer a measure of truth. Kainu, which means Our House in Haitian Creole, is an organization devoted to caring for abandoned and disenfranchised youth in Haiti. Kainu was started in 2009 by Executive Director E. Joanne Richard. Kainu aims to address the physical, emotional, and academic needs of Haitian youth. Their organizational model has adapted to the challenges unearthed by the devastating January 12th earthquake, which destroyed the majority of the government's buildings and the country's already weak infrastructure. This natural disaster created tremendous challenges, which adversely impact the hopes of the Haitian population and the future of the country. In addition to the earthquake, recent hurricanes and other natural disasters rendered the community unable to meet the basic quality of life needs for the majority of its citizens, especially in the rural communities. Kainu seeks to rebuild hope through education and employment opportunities, as well as create relevant and duplicatable projects that the people of Haiti will be able to manage. In addition to the youth, Kainu seeks to help the adults of Haiti with the reconstruction of schools and housing. Sponsor a child and create real, lasting change, not only for them, but for their community. For just $15, a child can receive a full uniform for the school year. Kainu believes that the uniforms will build confidence for the students and also encourage families to enroll their kids in school, knowing that they will not have to choose between educating their children over feeding their families. 
Become a sponsor by promoting this event via email, on Facebook, Twitter, and with your community, networks, family, friends, and coworkers. For more information, check out kainu.org. That's K-A-Y-N-O-U-I-N-C dot org. As the health care debate among Americans across the nation continues to heat up and become more and more agitated, the message from those who oppose the president's plan has become more and more hateful, outlandish, and downright racist. Like the poster that depicts Obama as a witch doctor. What's that about? I'm tired of hearing this rhetoric that compares changes and additions to our health care system to socialism or making comparisons to countries that only have a state-run health care plan. It's just not the same animal. And why so angry over a town hall meeting? It's not like our health care system is so flawless that we wouldn't want to risk messing up a good thing. Look, if we're going to fix the health care crisis in America, we need ideas, not anarchy. Does the outcry of socialism hold racial undertones? Is socialism the new N-word? Well, if it hasn't already crossed your mind, I just thought I'd put it out there. And speaking of state-run programs, we all know how Medicare and Medicaid just run our country into the ground, right? Oh, you haven't heard that one either? Well, neither have I. Now look, telling us what you don't want has nothing to do with telling us what is needed to resolve real issues with real answers, especially when it has no resemblance to what is actually being offered. The reason most Americans don't understand the public option is because the media has spent more time in covering public discord at town hall meetings rather than reiterating the actual points of the plan with its pros and cons. The voices of those that have true concerns are being drowned out by the pointless, angry voices. So here's the reality. 45,000 Americans die every year due to lack of health care in our country. Not to mention how many others are suffering right now with treatable illnesses and are dying a slow, painful death for the very same reason. So what are we going to do about it? Well, here's a clue. If you're just angry and bitter about socialism, you probably have nothing to do with a viable solution. I could care less about the failings of other countries' health care plans. You know, one good thing about that is we have already had an opportunity to learn from their mistakes. And there's no plan out there to get rid of what we have. Just add to it and make it better. How's that for a battle cry? Add to it and make it better. Since when did Americans stop believing in themselves? You know, in the months after 9-11, I can tell you that I've never been more proud of the American people. We were all unified with just one goal in mind, to help those that needed help rebuild and fix what was broken. That was not that long ago. If there's any country in the world that can get this right, you got to believe it's America. What do we have to be afraid of? Whatever's done will still remain flexible enough that we will have the opportunity to shape and mold this new system until it works the way we need it to. Sure, it might take some time, but the big push should be 
to be a part of the solution and stand in the gap for those who can't speak for themselves. If we stay involved and connected to the process, we cannot lose. No matter what bill may pass or whatever form, it's just a start and will never silence the voice of the American people. Don't be too quick to judge. You don't need the perfect solution to get started. Just a life cycle approach with a focus based in reality and a healthy dose of a measure of truth. There once was a woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children she didn't know. Well, I think you know where this is headed. And trust me, this is no nursery rhyme. The blogs are burning up the Internet with people who are fired up about the untemplate mom. Everything from personal attacks, ethical arguments to medical malpractice accusations. This story has single-handedly sparked a national debate on ethics and fertility. When Nadia Denise Suleiman gave birth to a set of octuplets in January. During an NBC interview with Ann Curry on February 5th, Nadia Suleiman said that she does spend about 45 minutes with each infant every day. <laughs> I grabbed my calculator and let's see, 45 minutes with each infant would take six hours. Whoa! But she's got six other kids. And if you give them 45 minutes too, that's 10 hours and 30 minutes to spend 45 minutes of individual time with your children. Just sticking with the octuplets and doing some guesstimating and minutes on tasks like diaper changing, bathing, and feeding and the like, and multiplying the results times eight. And it won't take you very long before you run out of hours in the day. And that's just with the infant's needs met. And even with the nanny, the grandparents, and Nadia taking care of the babies. The reality of the situation is overwhelming. Nadia has quickly become the woman that everyone loves to hate. So why are people so angry? Even if she had just one kid, or let's say two, she's not financially able to take care of the six kids that she already has. And anyone who has a child can't fathom taking care of eight infants at one time. We all have either experienced or have heard the stories of lack of sleep from the 2 a.m. feedings and sporadic diaper changes, but it's more than just that. Let's look down the road a bit. I love kids more than most, but can you imagine a day with eight two-year-olds? Even the first set of octuplets born in the United States back in December of 1998 in Houston, Texas, to mom Nakim Chukwu and dad Ike Lewis, well, with them it was normal to be sympathetic. They had no children at the time, and it's far easier to believe that this was just a modern-day miracle. The more we hear Nadia's story, the more we want to believe that she was somehow in control of all of the factors that led to this multiple birth and that the end result was somehow calculated and intended as well as irresponsible. Well, I just can't buy into this idea that she had this all figured out. Have we forgotten that women die giving birth every day and even in the most favorable circumstances? Some even want to exclusively blame the doctor as if he had somehow used her in some sick experiment to see how many babies a woman could carry to live birth. I asked a co-worker what she thought, 
And she was upset that on her website, even though the website is titled the Nadia Suleman Family, there are no pictures of her other kids. Hey, they need help too. The outrage over this story has escalated and does not seem to be losing any ground. Some even say that she should have her children taken from her as an unfit parent. Well, hold on now. Most of us have quite a bit of distance between us and the real story to have such a strong opinion. Regardless of what is determined as far as Nadia being capable mentally or financially to care for these children, I want these kids to stay together. These brothers and sisters deserve to bond, grow up together, and become a family. Generally, when multiple births occur in large numbers, I'm not really sure what the threshold is, but companies that sell products for feeding, bathing, changing, and clothing, like child safety and etc., would donate and sponsor the children for a given period of time to help out, and not just out of goodwill, but for marketing purposes also. But this story has received so much bad press that no one wants to be associated with Nadia or the babies. The clock is ticking, and the truth is, they're running out of time. Here's the really sad part. Even if you think that the mother is at fault, it's the kids and the grandparents that will suffer as well. And they're not accused of doing anything wrong, questionable, or unethical. Well, I hope you can at least find it in your heart to pray for the kids. Here are the names and ages of the innocent children. Their seven-year-old son, Elijah, six-year-old daughter, Amara, five-year-old son, Joshua, three-year-old son, Aiden, two-year-old daughter, Calissa, and two-year-old son, Caleb, who are twins, and the octuplets, Noah, Malia, Isaiah, Neriah, Micaiah, Josiah, Jeremiah, and Jonah. All have the name Angel as the middle name and Solomon as the last name. Every day I hear something that makes this story sound even more outrageous. But let's try to forget about the mother for a minute and get back to the real story, which is a family in need of help on so many different levels, but can't seem to get it. Not because the companies are strapped because of hard economic woes, but because they don't want to look bad in the public eye. Now who's the guilty one? Hey, a lot of this is just my opinion, but the facts are clear and simple. You may not agree with my point of view, but it is what it is. Whether you agree somewhat or wholeheartedly or not at all, let's hope that the next time you hear this story, it will be fashioned with far less hype, less hate, and for the sake of the children, at least a measure of truth. Here it is, no holds barred. John Stewart tries his best to squeeze some truth out of Jim Cramer in this TKO three-round smackdown that ends with John Stewart victorious and Jim Cramer, hopefully, jobless. Well, John Stewart really put the hammer down at Thursday night's must-anticipated appearance on CNBC's financial guru, Jim Cramer, on Comedy Central's The Daily Show with John Stewart. 
The face-off netted big ratings, drawing a crowd of some 2.3 million viewers, making it the most-watched daily show, second only to the episode that aired on Inauguration Day, which attracted 2.6 million viewers. But it was not just the viewers that watched the show that evening. Video of the interview immediately spread across the web like a viral email, boosting exposure far beyond Stewart's television audience. I proudly posted the video on my Facebook page, and I have to admit, I'm a big fan of Jon Stewart and The Daily Show, and that's been a long favorite of mine to get away from media burnout, but I don't commonly agree with every point of view. But I find Jon Stewart and the writers of the show exceptionally insightful, talented, and i got to admit it, absolutely brilliant. The showdown with Kramer came eight days after Stewart blasted CNBC for offering bland assurances about the health of investment banks and for soft interviews, such as the one last year with Houston's R. Allen Stanford, who was asked, is it fun being a billionaire? Stanford was charged last month with an alleged $8 billion fraud. Right off the bat, Stewart got Kramer on the defensive by playing a 2006 tape in which Kramer explained how traders game the system, and seemed to say that he had used such techniques in his Wall Street days. Kramer was playing a rope-a-dope while Stewart threw punch after punch. Dude, why even show up? It wasn't just a home-field advantage. They weren't even in the same league. Wait a minute. All of a sudden, something doesn't seem right here. Well, we'll put a pin in that. We'll get back to that one. But no doubt, Kramer is the financial expert. But John Stewart was a man on a mission. Kramer, a former hedge fund manager, known for his bombastic style, sounded apologetic at times, saying that he had made mistakes and wished that he and the network had done a better job. I had a lot of CEOs lie to me on the show. It's very painful, he said. Stewart was relentless and would not even allow this to go unchallenged. You're pretending that you're a doo-eyed innocent, Stewart shot back. Listen, you knew what the banks were doing, Stewart said, and yet you were touting it for months and months. The entire network was. So now to pretend that this was some crazy once-in-a-lifetime tsunami that no one could have seen coming was disingenuous at best and criminal at worst. Kramer later told colleagues that he felt blindsided by Stewart's hostile approach. Well, the word on the street is that the staff of CNBC were furious with Kramer on Friday for failing to defend the network's reporting or to criticize Stewart's video clips as selectively edited or out of contact, you know, which is the standard defense in situations like this. But it appeared to me that although there was quite a bit of hoopla leading up to this, Kramer seemed ill-advised and unprepared for the face-off. Well, let's get back to where we left off earlier. Here's a little gem that I got off the show from the 2006 clip in which Kramer explained how traders gamed the system. Jim talked arrogantly about how he skips around the law and SEC rules to manipulate the market and is able to do so because the SEC doesn't really understand the market. Come on, Kramer. The SEC... I really don't think you want to mess with these guys. And he says it with this almost, well, this is how the big boys play the game, swagger, that defies anybody to question his methods, motives, or collateral damage. A lot of what he says shows that he and others like him are part of the problem and are not in any way 
in favor of a solution. Why? He knows the game all too well to be in favor of allowing the rules to change to protect the innocent. Well, thanks for being so transparent there, big guy. But you weren't just talking about what other fund managers might be doing. You were kind of admitting with a certain level of confidence and certainty that this is how you yourself played the game. There needs to be an investigation on whether or not he used his show to intentionally mislead investors. And guess what? There's a clear litmus test to see whether or not he misled the public and used the show to game the market, or in other words, using the rules, policies, and procedures of a system against itself for the purpose outside of what these rules were intended for. The test is very simple. Did he follow his own advice? And if so, did he suffer losses as would someone who had followed his advice? If the answer is no, we have a problem. Well, yes, I'm just a layman, and I only know a little of these tactics that Kramer talks about. But again, he's the real expert. I'm sure between the SEC and the FCC, he may have to answer a few more questions than he did on Thursday night. And under oath. And when that time comes, when we tune in for financial news and information, surely then we'll stand a better chance at a measure of truth. If I may paraphrase Stephen King, the most important things are the hardest things to say. These are the things you feel ashamed of because mere words only diminish the thought. You see, words shrink things that seem limitless when they were in our hearts and minds to no more than just living size when brought out into the open. Oh, but it's more than that, isn't it? You see, the most important things lie too close to wherever your secret heart is buried. Like landmarks to a treasurer, your enemies would love to steal away and use against you at the worst possible moment. But still, you make revelations that cost you dearly, only to have people look at you like you're crazy, not understanding what you've said at all or why you thought it was so important that you almost cried when you were saying it. Do you know what's even worse than that? It's when the secret stays locked within and you can't get it out. Not for want of the courage to talk about it, but for want of someone who will just listen. Just listen. As someone who spends a great deal of time searching for the truth, the lesson that I've learned from this quote is, if you want the truth, you have to be prepared to release all judgment and be open enough to hear and accept the truth in whatever form it might take. Judgment alters the truth by changing how it's told or presented. Not accepting the truth stops the bearer from sharing the truth. Ignoring the truth kills ambition and is a recipe for disaster and makes success impossible. We all over the years have learned to guard ourselves against deception, but I've also come to realize that in most cases, you don't even have to discover or discern the truth. You just have to let it be and see it for what it is. Maybe you have a story too. 
It doesn't have to be just like the one we've heard. Hey, I just want to let you know, I'm here, and I'm willing to listen. All I ask from you is a measure of truth.
Station right here. 